0: Serial killer Gary Heidnick was every bit as twisted as the infamous movie character he inspired, Buffalo Bell from The Silence of the Lambs. He used his victims as sex slaves, forced them to torture each other, and even ground one of their bodies up and forced the other women to eat her flesh.
1: Is it my turn? Yeah. I wasn't sure on that note. that's uh, I'm kind of grossed out over here. Well, mine's not nearly as gruesome or exciting, but today is part two of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, where I'm going to get into the early leads and a little bit about the Boston Mafia that was also investigated, trying to figure out who done it.
0: From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. How did we miss that? Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine. And I'm John. We got a good one, a gruesome one for you today from my end. And I'm excited to hear the end of your saga. Your two-part episode. Yes. Should be good.
1: Before we get started, can I give a shout-out to someone? Sure. Who left us an amazing review on oh, yeah. Apple Podcasts. Jessica Abbey is her name. And on March 9th, 2021, she wrote, Love! With lots of exclamation points. So, love! Gave us five stars, and she wrote, Obsessed. Thank you for talking about the murders in Baltimore. It's a huge... In all caps, so it must be really huge issue that not many people are talking about, and it needs, in all caps, to be addressed so people don't continue to be murdered. Amazing. I love that she says that she's obsessed, number one, and I also love that she kind of sees us as giving like a public service, which we're doing
0: something good. Right.
1: Not just, you know.
0: Calling attention to the ones that we're missing. That's my point.
1: Yes, I love it. So thank you,
0: Jessica. I'm so glad you are seeing what we're trying to do here. You see us, I feel seen.
1: Yeah, we're not just here screwing around. We actually have a method to our madness. So thank you, Jessica. And all you other listeners out there, come on. You'll get it read on the air, too. So give us a review. Yeah, do it. Cool. All right, go.
0: All right. Well, my sources for this story are a foxnews.com article, phillymag.com, And an all that's interesting.com article by Mark Oliver. And it was published on January 23rd of 2019. So yeah, like I said, I'm going to talk about uh, serial killer Gary Heidnick tonight. And what caught my attention was that, you know, we know Silence of the Lambs is not a true story. But the fact that this guy inspired the Buffalo Bill character was really interesting to me. And I didn't know that. So, yeah.
1: So, our friend and loyal listener Kelly called me out about my lack of knowledge or seeing the Amityville Horror. Mm, right. N- Newsflash, Kelly and everyone else. I've seen Silence of the Lambs like one time. Not all the what way does through. The matter with you? Bits and pieces. I thought Buffalo Bill was a hotel at State Line in Nevada.
0: Okay. But he's also the killer in the movie that Clarice is trying to
1: catch. That's great. I had no idea. Well, now you do. And now I do. And I'm, I'm looking forward to learning. I will say, everyone else, pay attention to that disclaimer that goes off in the beginning. Because based on your brief description, yeah. this is going to get a little gross, I think.
0: We've got a probably a whole minute skip ahead, I think.
1: Oh, wow. That's, yeah. a, I think, our longest ever.
0: Coming, coming up in a little bit here.
1: All right. Well, we'll let you know before. But also, the disclaimer is before every episode, you've been warned.
0: Right, so if your children are in the back seat, probably don't want to listen to that anymore.
1: I mean, probably ever, actually.
0: Right. Don't don't subject your children to this. Exactly. Okay. All right, well, to the 50 members of his congregation, he was Bishop Heidnik, the head of the United Church of the Ministers of God. Sounds so regal. As a congregation, they happily met every Sunday inside Heidnik's home to hear his very unique point of view. However, what these people did not know was that just below their feet, six women were chained up like animals. So as we always do, I think it's really important to understand kind of where Gary Heidnick comes from, his early life, if you will. So he was born in Ohio in 1943. He didn't have the greatest upbringing, you know, do they ever? And he suffered through an abusive childhood in which his father would abuse him and make fun of him for wetting the bed. His father would force him to hang his dirty sheets outside so that the neighbors and people passing by could see the mistake that he made.
1: Okay, so this is a recurring theme, I think, through a couple of our shows, but especially the last one. Dad made fun of Butch and abused him a little bit Mm -hmm. as well. So all you dads out there, and I'm even talking to myself here, don't do those things. Think of the damage you're doing to your kids. They're going to end up like the Buffalo Bills. Right. And never win a Super Bowl. Oh, I mean, this this guy, Buffalo Bill, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> be good to your kids. Don't make fun of them. They end up killing people and doing bad things.
0: Right. All right. So Gary is showing at least one of the characteristics of the McDonald Triad, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a, a theory of violent tendencies in people. So serial killers, people that are really violent, they all tend to have these particular characteristics in their personality. One of them is frequent bedwetting, which we see Gary is showing at this moment. It's also uh, setting of fires and torturing of animals and things helpless and smaller than them. Hmm. So The
1: bedwetting one's interesting to me. The other two seem like violent things that... You know, cause harm to others, potentially. Right. But the bedwetting's kind of just a personal issue. Like, well, how is that indicative of violent behavior? That's interesting. I think it
0: just shows, like, a loss of control over yourself.
1: Yeah, and just some and kind of trauma that going is, on. Yeah. Exactly.
0: There's trauma, there's shame that comes along with it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I gotcha. Yeah. It's also a fear, Oh, you know? Really? Situation.
1: Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. yeah so... Interesting. I never knew that.
0: All right. Well, things do not get much better for him in high school, where he didn't have many friends and he was socially awkward. After graduation, he decided to go into the army, but he was discharged after serving for just over a year because of mental health issues. Heidnik worked briefly as a nurse, and this is where he began to realize that he could control people. So, Gary decided he was going to start the United Church of the Ministers of God in 1971 in Philadelphia with just five followers and $1,500. But things actually ended up growing really quickly. He was ultimately able to raise more than $500,000. Wow.
1: Yeah. That escalated very quickly.
0: Right. And he was also able to perfect his skill of manipulating people. Hmm. In 1985, he sent away for a mail-order bride from the Philippines. Okay. And he married Betty Disto and they had a son named Jesse. Their marriage would not last long though. After a year he was charged with spousal rape and Betty left him in 1986.
1: I didn't know spousal rape was a thing. I thought it was just rape. I didn't know they had Yeah, I mean those I don't parameters I think they're
0: just calling it that. I don't think it has different like connotations. I, I mean, I guess sorted up. I don't think it has like different punishments and consequences to it yeah i, think, but it's I think it's
1: just clarifying that right this wasn't a stranger one quick note i don't mean to derail you but i really hope the military is doing better with mental health things now instead of just yeah oh you have issues you're discharged what's that going to do to that person's mental health it's only going to make it worse
0: right so but you also I mean, don't like, want people like that with weapons and
1: no i understand but the military and the government has resources to try to rehabilitate them, like maybe don't put them in a weapons unit, but try to work with them with their mental health. I mean, the yeah. the military has doctors and things, but you just kick them out on the street, essentially. What is that doing?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Now you have someone You're with right.
1: a year of weapons training and mental health issues. That's recipe for disaster, as I like to say.
0: It's true. You're right. That's a good point. Well, he had actually been charged with crimes related to sexual assault before, but he didn't actually ever serve any significant time for them. And it turns out that Heidnik had two other children with two different women, both of whom had also complained of his violent sexual practices and that he always wanted to lock them up, a habit that would only get worse in the years to come. Gary Heidnick's first official victim was named Josefina Rivera, she was captured in 1986, and it's hard to imagine, but he was actually able to convince her to help him in the end. The way he initially captured her, though, was as brutal as the capture of any of his other victims. Like all of the women Heidnik went after, Rivera was a sex worker that he lured into his home. After having sex with her, um, Rivera was getting dressed when Heidnik came up from behind her and choked her. Then he dragged her down to his basement, chained her up, and filled the locks with superglue. I mean, there's no getting anything in those. No. Try to get yourself out of there. No. Not happening. It wasn't over, though. That's not, I mean, he's not just going to chain her up, of course. Yeah. He then beat her with a stick until she finally stopped screaming for help. Then he threw her into a pit in the basement floor and boarded it up to seal her in. The only light that seeped in came through the thin cracks between the wood covering overhead. Um, that's so scary. Yeah. I can't imagine just being in a pit in a basement.
1: I I know the basement itself, depending on your basement, is already kind of a pit of despair. Right. And then a pit within a pit. That Yeah, that sounds awful. Buried alive, pretty much. Pretty much.
0: Well, in just three months, he would end up kidnapping five more women, all in the exact same way. They were all thrown into the pit and were only pulled out to be raped or tortured. In an interview after she was finally freed, Josefina describes how she fell victim to Stockholm Syndrome. She says, quote... Anytime that you're cut off from the world outside, whoever's holding you captive, you're going to grow to like him regardless because he's your only contact to things on the outside. He's your only source of survival.
1: Hey, what is this Stockholm syndrome? I've heard this before. And what does it have to do with Sweden?
0: So I don't, I think it has it to do with name? a. I think it has to do with a case. Okay. That comes from there. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. I should probably research that, but it. It's um the idea that eventually if you are you get close enough to your captors, you'll begin to you know, like the Patty Hearst situation. Yeah, yeah. She eventually like grew to love them and Yeah, okay. Became part right. of their group kind of a thing. So even though this is like such a horrible situation, you eventually become attached to the person that has
1: Yeah, you have like this complete brainwashing
0: you don't know right. any better. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Um, It's also like how Elizabeth Smart, for example, they kept her from running away. Yeah. They kind of made her feel like she couldn't be without them. Yeah. Kind of a situation.
1: Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Rivera eventually began to help Heidnik and he made her the boss of the other women. It was his way of pitting the women against each other. If she did what he said, he'd bring her hot chocolate and hot dogs and let her sleep outside of the hole. It's nice. Hot chocolate and hot dogs. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Appetizing. So (laughs) good together.
1: Two things I never would ever put in the same sentence.
0: No. No. But he was very clear with her. If she ever disobeyed him, she would lose all of her privileges. The women learned quickly that disobeying him was very dangerous. Mm. When they made him angry, he would put them what he called on punishment. This would mean that they would be starved, beaten, and tortured. Sometimes he would wrap duct tape around their mouths and slowly jam a screwdriver into their ears oh. just to watch them squirm.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: So he's a nice guy.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can't put a screwdriver in someone's ear too far. I think you might kill them.
0: Yeah, I don't think he, like, oh. hurt them like that. I think it was just more like a, ah, you, you know, know? sometimes <laughs>
1: you put the Q-tip in a little too far, and it's right, like, and oh, it hurts. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Can you imagine a screwdriver? No. Oh, my God. I cannot.
0: Josephina knew that to stay on his good side and keep her privileges, she had to help him torture the other women. One time, he had her fill the pit full of water and attach a stripped extension cord to their chains, electrocuting them while he watched. The shock was so painful that one of the women, Deborah Dudley, was electrocuted to death. Barely reacting, Heidnik announced her death and exclaimed that now he could finally get back to having a peaceful basement.
1: Oh, finally. Finally. God, now that... Deborah Deborah Dudley is gone. Double D. Seriously. Finally can get back to a peaceful pit of despair.
0: I know. She must have been really loud or something. I don't know. Yeah. But this death was not the most horrible death in that basement. Sandra Lindsay, a mentally disabled woman who Gary Heidnik lured in shortly after Rivera, couldn't take the abuse as well as the others. So Gary starved her for days. When he tried to give her food again, she didn't move. He released her chains, and she collapsed onto the ground. When the other women started screaming at the sight of their dead friend, Heidnik threatened that if they did not stop, they would be next. He then dragged Sandra's body upstairs and cut it into pieces. So this is it right here. This is your graphic content warning. It's your disclaimer. We should get a help. little
1: sound to play so people just, in case they're only half listening when they hear like the whoop whoop, <laughs> hit the pause, whoop, <laughs> something.
0: Right. I I agree. I think that's good. But if you don't like this sort of thing, like I said, you might want to go like a minute or so ahead. Maybe.
1: Yes. Tell the kids to plug their ears.
0: Right. So anyway, Gary cooked Sandra's ribs in the oven. Like you do. And boiled her head on the stove. His neighbors actually complained of the smell, which made the police come out to pay a visit to the home. But Gary claimed that he just accidentally burned a roast. Hmm. So he didn't get caught at that point. He then put her arms and legs in a freezer. Then he ground her skin up, mm-hmm. mixed it with dog food, and brought it down to the other women. Oh. Three of the women were still on punishment because a few days earlier, Gary had actually allowed them to watch some TV. And one of the women made him angry when she commented that she was so hungry that the dog food in one of the commercials looked good to her. Well, Heidnik decided that she would get her dog food. And that she and the other two women would eat it with Lindsay's body parts mixed in. Ugh. They didn't have much of a choice. They had to either eat her or die. As one of the women, Jacqueline Askins, later said, she owes her life to Lindsay as she would have starved to death otherwise.
1: That's one way to look at it, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean. So I,
1: I always ask these questions you don't know the answers to. I'm curious what the smell is was and how it was so strong because listen I don't mean to be gross I don't you know maybe you should skip this part too if you're cooking flesh wouldn't it just smell like any flesh cooking cow chicken whatever I mean I don't I'm confused by that like what was the smell and how is cooking human different than you know baby back ribs.
0: So the only thing I can think of is it reminds me of when we were in our Birthing class when I was pregnant with Jacob. Yeah. And they said Not to be alarmed during the cesarean If you decide to have a cesarean section Or you needed to have one.
1: Yeah.
0: um, Because they had to cauterize your Wound after they Open your belly up And that a lot of the time That smell will Make a lot of women nauseous. Yeah. So just to be aware that That's something that you may
1: so like the burning skin. Experience. And stuff,
0: yeah. So I think what it is is the skin. Okay. When you cook, you know, chicken or beef, their their skin's not necessarily on it. I mean, I know sometimes chicken has the skin still. Yeah,
1: but it doesn't have the putrid smell. I, right. I understand. I yeah. don't know.
0: I mean, that's the only thing I can think of.
1: Yeah. And the probably like when you're boiling the head, burned hair smells awful. Oh,
0: burned hair is so the
1: worst. If that was happening, then okay, I got gotcha. you. Right. All right. Everyone can unpause now. <laughs>
0: Well, the story actually gets better from here because like we say, but wait, there's more. So even though she was his accomplice, Josefina Rivera ended up saving all the women. Toward the end, Heidnik was using her as bait to catch more women. He would take her with him to help him pick up other women and lure them into his home. You know, sometimes you see this with serial killers using another woman. Sometimes will make their victim feel safer. Like, oh, well, he's got a... Got another woman with him. I'm safe, right? So that's kind of how he was using Josefina. But instead, she was there to help him capture them and lure him back to the house. Or lure them, sorry, back to his house. She used the trust that she had built up to her advantage and on March 24th, 1987, after helping Heidnik abduct a seventh victim, she managed to convince him to let her go for just a few minutes so that she could try to see her family. Mm. He would wait at the gas station and she'd come right back. Rivera walked around the corner and when she was out of sight, she rushed over to the nearest phone and called 911. Officers quickly arrived and arrested Gary Heidnik right there at the gas station. They then arrived to raid his house of horrors. After four months of imprisonment and torture, the women were finally free. Four
1: months. Yeah, that's crazy. Didn't something happen like that recently? I thought I saw it in some... I can't remember which state, but there was like someone who had been being held hostage or prison in this person's house for years, and they finally got out, and like didn't really know like how to convince people. Oh, I can't remember. It just happened like maybe a couple of years ago. It was a big, big news story, and apparently there was yeah, a lot of women that I were re- there.
0: Oh, I don't know if that's a lot of women.
1: Maybe not a lot of. Maybe I'm getting oh my, my gosh, stories crossed. But I can't remember. She, we'll she to, had
0: a she had a baby too.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. At I read her whole
0: story. Yeah. And I can't remember what her name Yeah, it's is crazy. Now. Anyway,
1: I, I'm sure right. the listeners know what She was what like I'm in the backyard and... in a tent the whole yes, time. Yes, yeah. yeah. And nobody, people thought oh it was gosh. weird, but nobody noticed. I want to yeah. say
0: Casey Anthony, but that's not Casey Anthony. No. It's Shoot. okay. It's irrelevant. It's really going to for... bother me. It's not irrelevant. It's it's like the same
1: thing. Well, we can follow up, but I mean, I just think that, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And like, she didn't even realize, I mean, I guess she did because she got out, but you're in this place for so long. And like you said before, you're like brainwashed. Can you imagine going out and you must be like, I don't know. Just a, I can't imagine. That. Yeah.
0: Just the trauma that you yeah. must be experiencing. So despite his attempts to get off on an insanity defense, Gary Heidnik was convicted in July of 1988 and sentenced to death. He tried to kill himself the following January and his family tried to get him off death row in 1997, but neither were successful. Finally, finally, on July 6, 1999, Heidnik received a lethal injection and became the last person to be executed in Pennsylvania. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Just 10 years earlier, while he was still in prison, Heidnik's legacy in pop culture was secured when the character of Buffalo Bill in The Science of the Lambs was based on him. Mm. The character's house of horrors and habit of keeping women confined in a basement were so obviously a callback to Heidnik's crimes. As for Heidnik's congregation... It's hard to say how much they actually knew about what was really going on. Even after he was arrested, they kept coming to church.
1: I mean, that that brainwashing is very powerful sometimes. I guess so.
0: The story was on every news channel about how Heidnik abused the women, but his followers kept coming out to his house every Sunday for services. Wow. Like Rivera, Gary Heidnik's followers were victims of his manipulation as well. Neighbors would later recall that many of his followers seemed to be disabled in some way, either physically or mentally, making them easy targets for someone who promises them love and attention. Yep. One of his followers, Tony Brown, even considered himself to be Gary's best friend and ended up helping him dispose of Sandra Lindsay's body, falling victim to his manipulative ways just as much as the women did. So I actually think that's the most terrifying part of the story, not that the women were kept in a pit and tortured, but that Gary Heidnik wasn't just a guy who tortured and cannibalized a basement full of women, but he was able to get people to help.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, we see that in everyday life, honestly, like women attach themselves to these guys that are bad, not necessarily that are going to eat them and torture them in a basement, but you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't even have to be mentally ill, people... I don't know. I think you know what I'm saying.
0: Right. But the problem is that men like that have, um, they can sense weakness in people and they go after that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, some women, based on their upbringing or whatever, are attracted to men like that. So, they continue to go down right. that path. It's a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Man, sad. Well, you turned off your uh, device over there. Are you done?
0: I'm done. That's, That's so my short. story. I know.
1: I was enjoying that. Sorry. Okay. Well, mine's much less gruesome.
0: Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we need a little bit of uh, less gruesome.
1: Yeah. The source is Wikipedia. There's tons of articles out there. So my this section could be like an hour, but I'm going to cut a little short and I'm going to give you three names at the end that I want everyone to go out and research if you're interested in this. But if you remember, this is a continuation from last week. If you haven't listened, sorry. If you skip last week and go right to this, <laughs> go one, back. Stop right now. A
0: little and go weird back for Go back and you. listen to it. What episode is it? Twenty three. Uh, yeah. Episode twenty three. Sure. Uh, what was it? Gone.
1: Gone. Yes.
0: So stop right now and go back and listen. Yeah.
1: So speaking of first of all, I'd like to correct myself. Last week I said the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. That's because we have a daughter named Isabel and. Isabella just doesn't exist to me anymore. It's all Isabelle all the time. Right. It's actually the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. So if you searched for Isabelle, I'm sorry. I'm sure it still came up. I don't know. It did. (laughs) Good. You you
0: searched? I did. I searched. Oh, good. I was interested. I was reading about it.
1: So anyway, two guys described as Boston PD broke in, tied and bound the guards there and stole... Priceless Works of Art. That's a very short summary yes. of last week's episode. Well, the FBI took immediate control of the case on the grounds that the artwork could likely cross state lines. Like we talked about last week, what are people going to do with this artwork? They're probably not just going to take it to their private collection. They're probably going to take it somewhere, sell it, whatever the case is. So because of that, and because the case lacked any physical evidence. It made this case particularly unique. So they said the FBI just took it over immediately. And probably because of Boston PD's possible involvement with the disguised cops, this needed to become a federal investigation right away.
0: I wouldn't think that the value would make it a federal investigation.
1: Yeah. I mean, you don't get any more grand theft than 500 million. Pretty grand. Yeah, it's insane. So the thieves did not leave behind any footprints or hair, and it is inconclusive if the fingerprints left at the scene were from the thieves or the museum employees, which we talked about last episode. Yes. Because they're going around doing their rounds, touching everything. So, again, zero physical evidence, really. The FBI has since done some DNA analysis in the years following due to advancements in the field, which we've also talked about on this podcast. But they haven't discovered anything. And believe it or not, a lot of their files and things that they have come up with have been lost how does that even happen
0: that's weird i also actually read that they know who it is so tell
1: me about that because i stumbled across that and i didn't click on it because like i said there's just, just too much information i didn't want to go crazy with
0: this so what happened is i i was searching for photos to put up on our social media and there was an article that said the police know who it is but that I guess they're not naming any names. They just want the artwork back. Hmm. So their new campaign is not to get the people, but to show the public the artworks that are missing in the hopes that they will recognize it and get it back to them. Yeah. So all I saw was that they said they know who it is, but that's it. They didn't name names. They didn't say that people were arrested or brought in or even questioned. They just said that police have have stated that they know who the thieves were.
1: Well, a couple (laughs) of people I'm going to speak about could probably give you that impression.
0: Yeah, they knew.
1: I mean, somebody in an anonymous letter, I don't want to spoil too much because I'm going to read that part. Right, Basically came out and said they knew about it and then they just fell off the face of the earth. So I can see where they might think they know or have enough information now that they know who did it. Gang related, whatever. And I guess at this point there's no point in prosecuting anyone. I would think that the foundation and the museum just wants the stuff back. I mean
0: Yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like. They just want the artwork back.
1: When you lose one painting that's worth over 250 million, I would just want that back. Right. I don't care what happens to the thieves. So the guards and witnesses in the street describe one thief is about five feet nine inches tall to five feet ten inches in his late thirties with a medium build and the other six feet to six one in his early 30s with a heavier build. I believe yesterday you spoke you posted this on social media or not yesterday, but as we record this, this past weekend you posted a sketch of them, correct? Yes. Laurel and Hardy,
0: you Laurel said. Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> well, because the sketch looks very cartoon-like.
1: Yeah, I mean Like
0: how are you expecting to catch anybody when they look like people from Looney Tunes? Like
1: yeah, and I think it was I made not the,
0: very realistic.
1: I think I made the comment to you that I've seen plenty of Boston cops that resemble Laurel and Hardy, so it is plausible. But yeah. um, you know, no offense, guys and gals, but sorry, but it's true. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a really, really rough sketch. Very. And it's like, I, I don't know.
0: It looked like like a caricature of these people. It was not good.
1: Right, right. So last episode, I mentioned Rick Abath, Abath, Abbott. Abbott I just called him Abath. I don't know how to say his last name. Okay. <laughs> he was the museum employee that was acting a little weird. Right. Remember he did the side door mm-hmm. open and close thing. Um, he was investigated early on because of that suspicious behavior that I mentioned last episode in a little bit just now. So that opening and shutting of the side door, it's believed by many who have investigated him and been involved in this that he did that to signal The thieves who were in the car on the street, which we talked about last episode as well. Yeah, that's what I would think. Now, he claimed in his interview that he did that to check to see if the door lock was working. Okay. I mentioned I'm a security guy. I've done rounds like this before. Really no need to open the door if you just go tug on the handle and it doesn't open. Hey, newsflash, the thing is locked. It works. (laughs) Right. So the opening part is a little weird. To make matters even stranger, his colleagues told journalists throughout the press things with this that if that was a routine of his, that he actually did that like he claimed he did, the supervisors would have shut it down, and they would have had printouts of the door opening. They had a sophisticated security system that told you every time someone opened a door. I have those two at my job. Every security place has that. They can tell when doors are open or whatever, sensors. They said we had no rec- no, no reports of that. So it
0: wasn't something that he normally did. Right. So he
1: was lying. A habit. Okay. He was lying. But it sounds like this guy is a little off his rocker a little bit. This is what stood out as really strange to me. The motion detectors that we talked about in the last episode Mm -hmm. did not detect any movement in the blue room, which housed the painting Shea Tortoni. I think we mentioned that one in the list of them, but it's one that was taken during the 81 minutes that the thieves were in the museum. No movement in that room. Why? How is that possible? Yeah. The only footsteps in that room that night were a baths during his patrol. So did he remove it and put it somewhere else for the thieves?
0: Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Did he? Yeah.
1: So I don't think this guy's like a security mastermind. Um, I think that maybe he could have possibly been duped into some kind of involvement or threatened into some kind of involvement by the folks we'll talk about in a minute. Just so you know, a security consultant was interviewed and talked about the equipment and was able to determine that all the motion detectors were functioning properly. So it wasn't a malfunction. Okay. This is fact. The thieves did not go in that room where that painting was hanging, but yet it's missing. Weird, right? Yeah, that is weird. The only person that wasn't there, again, was Mr. Abath. Something's fishy there, right? Yeah. I mean, am I am I wrong in thinking that about no. this man? Mm-mm. Abath maintained his innocence, and the FBI agent overseeing the case in its early years determined that the guards, him and his partner, were just too incompetent and foolish to have pulled off a crime like this. <laughs> In 2015, the FBI released a security video from the museum on the night before the theft showing Abath buzzing in an unidentified man into the museum to converse at the security desk for a while. Abath told investigators he could not recall the incident or recognize the man, so the FBI requested the public's assistance. Hey, do you know who this guy is? Several former museum guards came forward and said the stranger was Abath's boss, the museum's deputy security chief. Hmm. And that's where the information ends.
0: So how is he an unidentified man then? They know who he is.
1: Right? It's, I was just going to say, it sounds like he's identified. The next step for me as an investigator was, I would go talk to this guy. Right. Because he's now identified. Why are you there? Were you there? Were, is this you? Right. But that's where the information stops. They kind of just gave up because they were too foolish to pull this off. Doesn't sound like it to me.
0: No. So just uh, as a side note, that I also posted that photo up as well on social media
1: you did so our next early suspect our good friend mr whitey
0: oh whitey Whitey you're just in all kinds of things mr bulger
1: the reason why is he was one of the most powerful crime bosses in boston during the 80s and 90s however he claimed that he did not organize the heists, and in fact he sent his agents Remember, we said way back when we talked about him that he was deep in cahoots Mm -hmm. with PD and the FBI. He sent his agents out in an attempt to determine who did this because the robbery was committed on his turf and he wanted some tribute. There you go. He wanted some, some money. Yeah. So FBI agent Thomas McShane, of course, from Boston McShane investigated Bulger for his involvement. He determined that his strong ties with the Boston police could explain how the thieves got uniforms, real uniforms.
0: Are they sure they were real? Or they just weren't really good Well, so I'm using the word real. The
1: the research says legitimate. So, I mean, that, you know.
0: I mean, you've seen one cop uniform. you kind of seen them all.
1: Right, and if you really don't know the nuances of them, you're just some security guard or whatever, I, I mean— a patch and a badge it will make it look legitimate right? whether it's real or not, right? They also think that maybe he was so close with the police that he actually arranged for two real policemen to do the heist. Hmm. I don't think that was the case. This is where it gets a little interesting. Whitey also had relations with the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and a rival kind of gang group called the, I'm going to mess this up, Ulster Volunteer Force. Both of those organizations had agents in Boston at the time, and they have demonstrated capability in the past of pulling off art heists. It's like something they did. Another part that made the IRA lead stand out is their calling card, something they do all the time before they bomb things or whatever, is pull a fake fire alarm. Remember from last episode, that's what happened. Remember all the fake fire mm-hmm. alarms, the fake smoke that didn't happen? Right. So, a lot of things pointed toward that. However, McShane's investigation of Bolger and the IRA did not produce any evidence to tie them to the theft. Without any evidence, the case goes bye-bye. Right. All right, this is my favorite theory. In 1994, an anonymous letter was written to the museum. It was addressed to director Ann Hawley. She received received the letter from someone who claimed to be attempting to negotiate a return of the artwork. So this sounds similar to what you were saying that they know who it is. I could see based on what I'm about to tell you where that theory may come into play. Okay. The writer of the letter explained that they were a third party negotiator and did not know the identity of the thieves. They explained that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence for someone. But that opportunity had passed. There was no longer a motive to keep the artwork, and they wanted to negotiate a return. In exchange for the art, they wanted immunity for themselves and all others involved for, you know, a nominal fee of $2.6 million, which would be sent to an offshore account at the same time that the art was handed over. If the museum was interested in negotiating, they could print a coded message in the Boston Globe. To establish credibility, the writer conveyed information only known by the museum and the FBI at the time. That's the part that was interesting to me is obviously they knew a lot about this. The director felt this was a strong lead, so she contacted the FBI, who then contacted the Globe, and they did the coded message, which was printed on May 1st, 1994. Oh, cool. Holly received a second letter a few days later where the writer acknowledged the museum was interested in negotiating, so this is a real person, but had become fearful that an investigation by federal and state authorities was underway to determine their identity. The writer explained that they needed time to evaluate their options, but Holly never heard from the writer again.
0: Oh, man. So
1: they got spooked and they're gone. Crazy, right? There was one more early lead, the guy by the name of Brian McDevitt. He was um, a con man from Boston who had attempted a similar heist from a collection in New York in the early 80s. Okay. So he's from Boston, steals art or tries to. During that attempt, he dressed as a FedEx driver, so he likes to dress up as people. He's not. He carried handcuffs and duct tape so he could bound the guards and bound bind the guards, tie them up. I think. And had planned to steal a Rembrandt painting. Hmm. A Rembrandt was stolen from this one. So all signs point to this guy, Brian McDevitt. He also vaguely fit the description that witnesses gave of one of the Gardner's Museum's thieves. The similarities intrigued the FBI. Obviously, so they interviewed him in late 1990. He denied any involvement and refused a polygraph. People that refuse polygraphs sound guilty. Right? I don't know.
0: No, I would refuse a polygraph test. But it can't
1: that's because do anything. you're smart.
0: You can't. You it can't do anything but hurt you.
1: So you're telling me you think this guy, a common thief, con man, knows that? I mean, maybe oh, he does. Yeah. You know that because you're a crime junkie.
0: I'm a... Yeah.
1: But I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess you're right. But to me, as someone who investigates people occasionally, that's...
0: There's just too many. It's just too unreliable. There's too many ways to beat it. There's too many ways that it could be fallible. There's just too many... Okay. I gotcha. Yeah.
1: Well, once again, the FBI ran this guy's prints, and they didn't match any found at the scene. Right. So... They cut him loose. He eventually moved to California and found a way um, to con his way into work into television. And then he died in 2004. So hmm. it doesn't matter if he did it. He's gone. So those were the early leads. But all these things pointed to a bigger investigation that involved the Boston Mafia. The FBI announced significant progress in their investigation. This may have been what you read. In March 2013, they reported with a high degree of confidence that they identified the thieves. Yeah which they believed were members of a criminal organization based in the mid Atlantic and new England. They also felt with the same confidence that the artwork was transported to Connecticut and Philadelphia in the years following the theft with an attempted sale in Philadelphia in 2002. Their knowledge of what happened after that is limited, however. So they requested the public's help to locate and return the artwork. Like you said, that's all they care about. In 2015, the FBI stated both thieves were deceased Though the FBI did not publicly identify any individuals, sources familiar with the investigation say they were associated with a gang from Dorchester here in Boston. The gang was loyal to the Boston Mafia boss Frank Saleme and ran their operation out of an automobile repair shop by criminal Carmelo Merlino. So these people are known as the Merlino gang. Okay. All these people are probably listening to this and they're going to come put cement shoes on me. I really worry about that when I talk about all these crime people local to us. So reading that and hearing you talk about it, that sounds to me like the FBI is giving up. Yeah. Oh, they're dead, but we have no information. They'd be coming out right away. We know who did this. We just want to find the art. The thieves are dead. They'd be like patting themselves on the back that they solved this. Right. But just saying that, oh, they're dead. We're not going to tell you who they were. That seems weird to me. Merlino's associates may have gained knowledge of the museum's weaknesses after gangster Louis Royce cased it in early 1980. He devised plans with an associate to light up smoke bombs and rush the galleries amidst the confusion. In 1982, when undercover FBI agents were investigating Royce and his associates for unrelated art theft, they learned of their interest in robbing the Garden Museum and warned the museum of the gang's plan. Royce was in prison at the time of the actual robbery, Roy shared his plan with others and believes associate Stephen Rossetti may have ordered the robbery and shared it with someone else. Okay. So based on all that information, I'm thinking the mafia, some kind of crime crime group had something to do with it. The three people or four people, rather, I wanted to mention that I think everyone should look into. I read their stories, and like I said, this could go on for hours, so I'm not going to do it here. But I want you to look into it is Robert Guarante and Robert Gentile, David Turner and Bobby Donati. They were all involved some way and somehow with this crime syndicate who I believe is behind this. I believe they used a bath to help steal one of the paintings, put it in another room out of fear. He's not saying anything. That's my theory. That's who done it. Where the art is, I have no idea. Yeah. No idea. Like you said, how are those things just lying around? And someone's like, "Oh my God, that's the concert by what's his nugget that's worth two hundred fifty million dollars." Right. I would think someone. I wonder if people tried
0: to pass it off as reproductions when they're actual real painting. Yeah.
1: I don't know who who knows, man. It's crazy. But there's been people looking for this all over the world for quite some time yeah one interesting thing about the people that i did read that i'll say real quick is they went and raided the house of this person they had a ditch in the backyard with like it was a secret ditch that was dug on purpose to hide things but it was empty yeah and i guess the guy's son said that there was a flood and that my grandfather or father somebody i'm i'm screwing this all up but basically somebody was very upset that the contents of the ditch were ruined was it this $250 million painting? Who knows? Oh my gosh. Yeah. To me, the only point of stealing this would be to sell it and make the money. Yeah. Why that hasn't happened yet, crazy to me. So this is bizarre. I'm definitely going to do more research, see if there's any books out there, because I'm very interested and we need to go to this Let's place. go to the place. When we're allowed to. I
0: thought it was really cool that they just have the empty frames up.
1: Yeah, that's super I totally want to totally check that
0: out. Yeah, it's really cool. And I guess they have like you can like an augmented reality thing where you can like put your phone up and it'll show the painting that's supposed to be there. Oh,
1: yeah. It's more than a museum now. It's like going to Alcatraz. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's about pretty the crazy. crime as much as it is about the museum. Right. Totally cool. We're going. Yeah, we the should. The kids will hate it, but we're going. Let's do it. All right. That's my story.
0: All right. Well, if you would like any more information or pictures on either of these cases, please make sure to visit us on social media at HowDidWeMissThat. And I want to give a shout out for our theme composition to Audio Anywhere Productions. You can find them at AudioAnywhereProductions.com. Until next week, keep your head up and look out for each other.